KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. It's Hispanic Heritage Month, and Cinema Junkie has some viewing recommendations for you. But, of course, it's not a conventional list. I really enjoy confrontation as a viewer. I don't like being lulled into a sense of complacency while I'm watching a film. And I think some of the films that I've kind of earmarked start with these kind of confrontational, cinematic kind of provocations. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Today, I'm speaking with one of my favorite film programmers, Media Arts Center's Moises Esparza. For the past decade, he's been programming daring and diverse films at the San Diego Latino Film Festival and Digital Gym Cinema. I asked him to curate a list of films to watch during Hispanic Heritage Month, and he did not disappoint. This is not a list of the most popular or biggest box office hits or most familiar names. Instead, Moises serves up a very personal list of films culled from the thousands of movies he's programmed over the last 10 years. And the films reflect the diversity of Latin, Latinx, and Hispanic cinema from across the U.S. and around the globe. Okay, asking someone to pick just a handful of films to reflect a decade of filmmaking from around the globe is no easy task. So I have allowed Moises to offer a slightly longer list of film recommendations online at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. So you can find a title list with his comments for more films to seek out. But right now, I need to take one quick break. And then I'll be back with a truly diverse and provocative list of films to watch during Hispanic Heritage Month. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. For the past 10 years, Moises Esparza has been curating films from around the world and across the U.S. for both the annual San Diego Latino Film Festival as well as the micro-cinema of Digital Gym. I knew Moises would have some surprising choices. So to begin our conversation, I asked him to give us some insight into how he chose the films for this list. When you brought on this proposal of me highlighting some key films from my years as a curator, I really had no idea how this list would take form, to be honest. So I opened up my old documents of programming from 2015 and 2014 and, and so on. And I just started picking titles that really like stuck out to me first. Like, oh, that was an amazing film. Oh, that was an amazing film. And then what I did was I tried to, once I had my, my initial list, I tried to diversify, have a couple of documentaries, have films that talk about the indigenous experience, talk films that talk about the Afro-Latinx experience, um, some crowd pleasers, and then some honest-to-goodness provocations. So that's kind of how I landed on the films that I'm presenting with you today. Not to say that there aren't thousands and thousands of other amazing films. I mean, I could have picked 
them all, to be honest, and it would have been a great list. But on this theme of Latinx Heritage Month, I really wanted to create a list that not only showed what it's like to be Latinx identifying in the United States, but what it might mean to be Latino in Mexico, in Central America, in South America, and to maybe think of ourselves less as one single entity and to start recognizing that there are so many latitudes and verisimilitudes between Latinos, you know? We are so different from region to region to region. And the sooner we start opening our eyes to those experiences, I think the sooner we'll create some sort of interconnectedness. So what I'm offering is a pretty broad perspective of the films that I've programmed, but I also do think that it's a sampling, a, a pretty honest sampling of where the Latinx film industry was 10 years ago and where it is today. I always, I feel like I always say the same thing, but if you are looking at my list, I encourage you to look for other titles that might pique your interest. And then if you are watching films from this list, I really encourage you to watch as many and of course to pass along the word to increase the viewership of these films. Sometimes after film festivals, some of these films go immediately online and they become part of some AI algorithm that might pop up on your (laughs) recommended list once every five years. So I encourage you to keep recommending films that you like, not only from this list, but from many, many other lists. I do think curation is important as a profession, obviously, but also there's such a thing as like personal curation between friends and family and running the message about a lot or spreading the message about a lot of these films is so reliant on personal recommendations. And yeah, happy viewing. One thing I want to prepare people for is this is not a list of necessarily the big box office Latino films, the biggest names behind the camera. This is a very kind of personal list to highlight some really amazing films. Absolutely. It's very personal, but sometimes you have to reach into the bag of films that you've seen and pick out the 10 that just stand out to you on that day. And this film might look different in a week or in two weeks, but as of today, these are the films I'm proposing. I mean, it's all subjective also. I'm not saying these are the best films. These are films that have stood out to me that I've shared with audiences here in San Diego. And, you know, I just hope that you know, people just take away from the list that there is such a rich diversity of Latinx cinema available. And I guarantee you that a lot of these films are available on some sort of streaming platform that you can easily access. So I encourage all of you to watch these movies. But before we start talking about these films, you kind of have an announcement for us. Yes. So after 10 years working in the programming department here at the Media Arts Center San Diego, through the San Diego Latino Film Festival and the Digital Gym Cinema, I'm currently transitioning into a new role. The new role is focused on development and fundraising. I am excited to embark on this new adventure. I'm excited to usher in new curatorial voices for both of these programs. I'm really excited to be focused on long-term planning for both the San Diego Latino Film Festival and the Digital Gym Cinema. I wish you the best, and wherever you are working, you are going to make great things happen, but I am going to miss your curation because I have always found you to be an amazingly thoughtful programmer who picks some amazing films every year. 
But we are going to benefit right now from the fact that you're going to look back on this 10 years and painfully choose just a few titles (laughs) to share with us. And I'm not sure where you might want to start, but a lot of your films kind of feel like road trips and journeys. So maybe pick a journey, a road trip to start with. Yes, uh, thank you, Beth. That's such an interesting point. I do think that during my tenure here as programming manager, I have seen a lot of films that recontextualize the road movie or the adventure movie. Um, And I think a great place to start and to situate ourselves uh, within sort of uh, my programming philosophy is with Tatiana Hueso's documentary, Tempestad, which means storm. It's not a typical road movie in the sense that you have two sidekicks embarking on a fantastic adventure. Um, It's actually a portrait of Mexico at a crossroads as it has an internal reckoning with all of the cartel violence that has been so prevalent for so many years now. The film itself focuses on two stories. One of them is focused on a woman uh, who was wrongfully convicted of human trafficking, and she's sent to a prison where her family's forced to pay for her safety every week. And the second story that we learn about through this documentary is about a circus performer who fights against all odds to find out what happened to her missing daughter. Now, as I describe the movie, you might be wondering, like, how is this a road film? And where that comes in is through the visuals of the film. What you see as you hear the narration of these women telling their stories is footage of empty Mexican highways, countrysides, security checkpoints. Circus scenes. So what you get is kind of this idea that the camera's traveling from north to south and south to north of Mexico and capturing what it's like to live in this almost abyss in a sense. Uh, So the camera travels extensively as you're learning about the lives of these women and what does this emptiness convey to the viewer? To me, it conveys horror and terror. And in a way, I think we've been conditioned to look at these genres as blood and guts and jump scares. But what this film proposes is that maybe what's more terrifying is the emptiness and what happens when we become so acclimated to hearing about these stories of violence and torture and we become numb to it. So what we're presenting as we're watching the movie is kind of this landscape that we're able to project kind of our own emotions onto as we're receiving kind of this narration from these two survivors. It's one of the films that I think about extensively whenever I look back at my years programming here at the San Diego Latino Film Festival and the Digital Gym Cinema. And whenever someone asks me to point out like one of my favorite films or best documentary or whatever, Tatiana West's Tempestad is one that I always return to. And I'm so happy to have been able to program it. And in looking at these films over the past 10 years, what kind of elements stand out for you that make a film something that you do return to like this? I really enjoy confrontation as a viewer. I don't like being lulled into a sense of complacency while I'm watching a film. And I think some of the films that I've kind of 
earmarked start with these kind of confrontational, cinematic kind of provocations. Why do I value this as a viewer? Is because I do think that viewing films is an act. I don't think it's a passive activity. I think my mind is always kind of racing as I'm watching films, trying to understand, trying to contextualize, trying to project. And I really want to think as film as an interrogation, a self-interrogation. You're in a dark room presented with an image that's larger than life. So I don't ever want to just be inactive, I guess. So I try to pick films that kind of push viewers to engage with films. One thing I hear so often and it really annoys me is people like don't even want to watch films with subtitles. But to me, it's like, what? You're missing out on so much cinema if you're being too lazy to read what's on screen. But anyways, that that's maybe a, a digression. Well, and one of the things I've also noticed about a lot of your choices is you don't necessarily like films that are strictly linear and narrative or that are very conventional in their structure. And when you talk about the sense of provocation, that comes in some of the films just stylistically and kind of how they present themselves to the audience. And one that was really fascinating is Zama. So talk about that. Don Diego de Zama. Yes, you're completely correct. I don't really love a conventional narrative structure. I like films that feel elliptical. I like films that are more about a sensory experience, a poetic experience. Plot points to me aren't that exciting. I even like it when a film kind of seems to start start over in the middle and you're like, okay, where am I trying to situate? You know, you're trying to situate yourself as a viewer. And that to me presents a lot of excitement. Um, so Lucrecia Martel's Sama is a wonderful example of this. It's um, a film that interrogates uh, colonialism in South America. It's a film that's provocative from the first sequence. Very briefly, the protagonist, Don Diego de Zama, is spying on naked women bathing, and they call him a voyeur. Miron. Miron. And what are we doing as viewers also? We're voyeurs ourselves, we're looking. So what transpires is after he's caught watching these women bathe, one of them grabs his ankle. It's almost a physical provocation. They they have a tussle. So that to me draws me in as a viewer from the get-go. It says, this film is asking you to engage. And then what follows this, it's a very elliptical narrative that as you're watching the film, you feel like, okay, where is this film going? What is the point? But the point of the film is to describe visually, cinematically, how this man who is an employee of the Spanish crown in the 18th century feels stuck on the Paraguayan coast. And he's waiting for these transfer papers that never come. Um, and as he waits, madness creeps in. So as you're watching the film, the film's pace is very leisurely, it's very passive, that you yourself feel the sense of, of being captive in a sense. And you want him to get out of these circumstances. You want him to escape. But that's not really the point of the narrative. The point of the narrative is to describe the hellish conditions that were brought upon by colonialism. So in a way, by this provocation that I recalled earlier as voyeurs, we're also maybe being asked to question, have we been complicit in this colonialist tradition? The film is rewarding in that 
this weight that you have really pays off in the third act, which really ramps up the violence and the thrills, and it feels like a much more conventional adventure film. But even as it applies more conventional sensibilities, the filmmaker Lucrecia Martel, who is uh, who has described as being a whore fanatic herself, she says she has learned from that tradition, she finds ways to pull you know, the rug under our feet just as we're thinking we're figuring out where the film is going. She does some really fascinating kind of twists towards the end of the film. So Zama is a film that plays with time, provocations. It's also very critical of a colonialist tradition. And it, the film itself is a labor of love. I mean, I think there were like 20 producers on the film. It took four years to get the funding together. Um, and even I remember when I was watching the, f- the film for the first time, when you're watching an international film, you see all the funders at the beginning. <laughs> and it was a very long kind of funders zone. And I thought, wow, it's amazing that for Lucrecia Martel, who is an established filmmaker, um, you know, she had to really fight to get the funding together for this film. And um, again, I'm really glad to have been able to program it during my tenure here. And over the years, you've also returned to some directors that you've liked. Gabriel Mascaro has directed a couple you've liked, including one that was a science fiction film, Divine Love. But what is the film that you want to most kind of recall from this past 10 years from him? Yeah, so Gabriel Mascaro made uh, a sci-fi film a couple of years ago called Divine Love that was, in a way, a response to Bolsonaro's right-wing politics. And his earlier film is such kind of a departure stylistically and in terms of aesthetics, but in terms of an exploration of sexuality and gender roles, they seem kind of like very interesting companion piece. And the film I'm referring to is Neon Bull. Uh, the film itself is about a cowboy who works at rodeos. Uh, he v- leads a very nomadic life with his chosen family, and they travel from rodeos to rodeos together. And again, when you first watch the film, you think, I recognize this cowboy archetype, I recognize this cowboy persona, I know what this person is about. But about a quarter into the film, you'll learn that this cowboy also has aspirations of being a fashion designer. So he scribbles down, he's always scribbling uh, sketches of very provocative stage wear, which he creates for his friend. Uh, So when you learn that kind of like nugget of information, you start thinking about the film in different terms. It's not just an exploration of cowboy culture. It's also an exploration on sexual fluidity and the the, um, fluidity of maybe stereotypes that we bring into viewing experience. We think a film is going to be personified a specific way, but it's totally different. Um, And then the film also is very unabashedly sexy and sensual. Uh, There's a sex scene towards the end of the film that is so natural and provocative and in a way seems a bit out of line with what came before it. But by its conclusion, you realize that it's all part of this way of articulating life in a very raw, sensory, and emotional way. So Neon Bull also stands out to me as one of the films that really bucks conventions and asks the viewer to put aside their own prejudices and and stereotypes and be really involved in a new world that Gabriel Moscato creates. But yeah, again, really thrilled to have been able to to program Neon Bull while while I've been here. Now, a lot of these films are a bit provocative, 
in terms of content and structure, but sometimes you also have liked some that are a little more of the crowd-pleaser kind of genre, and one of those involves young children looking for treasure. Yes, so a question I get constantly asked by patrons of the Latino Film Festival and the Digital Gym Cinema is, why are there no family movies? And I tell them, there are family movies, they just don't look like what Hollywood is pushing. They have a different tonality, they have a different rhythm. There's films at every one of our editions that are appropriate for ages zero to 100 or whatever, you know? And Tesoros is a movie I want to point out as being so accessible to everyone and so crowd-pleasing, but also has its own provocative messaging. Um, like you said, the film is about um, a group of students, uh, young students, uh, who live in the Mexican Pacific coast, um, who decide that one of their maps that has an X on it, accessible through an electron electronic device, looks very similar to their town, to where they live, and they notice an X. So they become convinced that there's a treasure in this X. What's so amazing with this movie and thrilling is that it pushes forward this narrative that both adults and young kids can participate in adventures together. I think when we watch a lot of conventional family films, there's the adult world and the kids' world. And what this movie does is that it merges the two of them and emphasizes that with collaboration and more importantly, community building, you can achieve great things and you can embark on amazing adventures that will come to define your young, young existence. So at the Sotos, when I first saw it, I'll, I'll be a bit corny, it did make me feel in a sense that I was watching something like The Goonies or E.T. or one of these films that really captured my imagination when I was very young. And to see it as an adult and to be charmed and to be disarmed and to just be kind of washed over with euphoria really about seeing a film that really emphasizes the importance of community, I thought was almost almost radical in, 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 in a sense. So I encourage families to watch The Sotos, directed by Maria Novaro, who in her own right is one of the most acclaimed filmmakers in Mexico. And The Sotos is just kind of a gift of a movie. Some of the directors that have been showcased here have become very well known to the mainstream public, people like Alfonso Cuaron and Guillermo del Toro. But another one of these directors who maybe hasn't quite crossed over quite that far, but Pablo Lorraine has directed some films that you have really liked. And recently you screened one. I think this was one of the pandemic screening films. So tell us about, a little bit about the whole adventure of uh, running a film during the pandemic and, and the message that it had. Yeah, so Emma, directed by Pablo Lorraine, stands out as the film of the pandemic in my mind. Our festival actually got canceled on the day of its launch, back when the initial shutdown happened. So my team and I were left reeling and unsure if the festival would ever come back. There was so much uncertainty back then. Thankfully, we were able to pivot a couple of months after the closure and offer a virtual cinema, a virtual edition. So if everyone remembers, a couple of years ago, we were all on Zoom <laughs> trying to connect with each other. So what was that experience like? That experience was in a sense, more 
connected than I've ever felt in a way. I was able to engage with filmmakers from all over the world who were really committed to connecting with audiences. Uh, one of them was in Europe during our interview time, so they had to wake up at three in the morning to do the interview with me, and they were super excited. So in a way, you know, the pandemic brought on a lot of tragedy and a lot of turmoil, but it also made me feel so much more connected to a lot of these filmmakers who were participating in the talent of the films because we were all so excited just to connect with each other, you know, via Zoom or whatever platform it was. All of that to say is that Emma is the film that defines a pandemic in my sense because of this really iconic image that I have of, uh, of the film in my mind, which is of the protagonist <laughs> carrying a flamethrower and setting things ablaze in a way that's kind of how, how I felt my, my internal mental state felt during the pandemic. A lot of frustration, I needed a release. And Emma is a catharsis on so many levels. Again, a provocation, a film that focuses on redefining a nuclear family structure. It focuses on a couple, two dance choreographers. They adopt a child, and then the child does something truly heinous, and they're forced to give the child back. The woman in the relationship, Emma, becomes a social pariah. There's a line in the film that I, I, I think about a lot where it's like, mala mujer, mala madre, bad woman, bad mother. So this film really investigates like what it, what it really means to be a woman and what it really means to be a mother. And it offers alternatives to motherhood that I've never seen on screen. It blends it with dance and this flame throwing that I just described to become a really sensory experience. I think, you know, usually I like slow, methodic films, but this is the complete antithesis to that. It is an angry film, a film that has a lot to say about sexual fluidity and family structures, and a film that really wants a revolution to happen so that women feel less confined to these very specific gender norms. So in my mind, Emma will always be representative of the pandemic. And like you mentioned, it's directed by Paul Larrain, who is such a wonderful, wonderful filmmaker and has a new film on Netflix that imagines Agosto Pinochet as a vampire called El Conde. Uh, so he is a filmmaker that's constantly pushing themselves to create new exciting works. Well, and the interesting thing about that film, too, is that screened at the very beginning of the pandemic, but it seemed to be kind of a harbinger of the unrest and anger that was going to come fairly soon after the pandemic started with Black Lives Matters and, you know, a number of other things like that. Oh, absolutely. Out of the films that I've chosen, it is probably one of the few true protest films, a film that not only relies on the dialogue to show a state of unrest, but actually shows active unrest. It shows this protest through dancing, through this flamethrowing, through this destruction, all to achieve a revolution. So in a way, it is very tied into all of the unrest that arose after and during the pandemic. So it, it, it's an interesting thought to think of Emma as a political film or a political essay film, but it makes sense to contextualize it as that or for viewers to use it as such because some of the messaging of the film might make 
more traditional thinkers uncomfortable. But if you think of it as an act of political f- resilience, political liberation, I think it might make a bit more sense. So, so far, the films you have chosen have all been foreign, but there are some films that reflect a Latino American or an experience from an American perspective on this. So what is your final pick here? My final pick is a documentary called Beba, uh, directed by Rebecca Hunt. It's the filmmaker is the focus of the documentary. And in fact, she says, You are now entering my universe. I am the lens, the subject, and the authority. So you're immediately engulfed in the world of Beba. This, that's the nickname of the filmmaker. As she grapples and reckons with generational curses, generational trauma uh, brought upon by her family's lineage. Her dad was uh, from a plantation in in the Dominican Republic. Her mom from Venezuela. She identifies as Afro-Latina. So she tries to grapple with the racism, the injustices, um, the microaggressions that she and her family have dealt uh, with on a daily basis since being residents of New York City. Um, And she does it in such a raw and unfiltered way that, again, is a provocation, but also, I think, truly lets viewers gain a lot of insight into the Afro-Latina experience. Um, There's not enough Afro-Latina perspectives on screen, in my opinion. I think we should be doing everything we can to amplify their voices and their stories and to continue giving them platforms to express themselves. So that's why Beba really stands out in my mind as a U.S.-specific Afro-Latina experience. Um, And Beba is not just talking about these generational curses kind of in a macro way. It also turns the camera on the subject. The filmmaker turns the camera on themselves and allows us to see flaws and allows us to see anger and allows us to see reckonings with between her and her family. And she's very honest about what the documentary might do to her family as she kind of explores this generational trauma. And in that honesty, I think we as viewers walk away with a more authentic and connected experience. So Beba is a film that I think is a must watch. It was released a couple of years ago by Neon. So I commend you know them for distributing a film like this. But I really do think that Beba is a film that might have gone under the radar a bit, but I do think deserves um, to gain a huge audience. Um, in terms of giving voices to people who don't always get heard, I noticed on your list, too, that although women don't necessarily represent the majority of filmmakers whose films are showcased, you really have a heavy leaning towards uh, female filmmakers on this list. Yes, it's been a mission of the Latino Film Festival and the Digital Gym Cinema to reach gender parity. Um, Obviously, we believe that women filmmakers and their voices should be amplified and celebrated. So whenever I see surveys and studies, they always write it to make it seem that there are no women filmmakers, but it's like 
I could send you a list of 100 women filmmakers working today who you can hire only if you gave them, but you have to give them the opportunity, you know? So as I was looking through this list, I realized, yes, a lot of the films were made by women, but it might just be that they're making amazing films that need to be recognized and celebrated. And that's a mission of the festival and the digital drum cinemas and one that I was happy to promote and to amplify. And I know that whoever takes over, that's going to be part of their mission as well. Sometimes I feel like we can't lose sight on the inequality and the unfairness. So I've received feedback that having a showcase like Viva Mujeres is, or that's a showcase celebrating women filmmakers. Sometimes I've heard that, you know, oh, why are you isolating women to this showcase? We're not. There's women filmmakers in all of our showcases. But the showcase is dedicated to women who are redefining what it's like to be a woman with a political lens, with a more radical approach to filmmaking, more experimental. Um, So I feel like until women have an equal place at the table as men filmmakers in terms of the access to films and budgets and distribution deals, et cetera, it's important for film festivals to continue advocating for the inclusion of women. And one of the things I've noticed over the decades of the San Diego Latino Film Festival, you know, when the festival started, there was a lot of focus by the filmmakers on identity. And that was very much in the forefront of the stories of defining who they are. And what I really enjoy about your picks and about more recent films and more recent programming is that the filmmaking and the styles and the themes have become more diverse and Identity is still key, but it's no longer in the forefront. And I feel like these films are taking much more interesting and provocative ways of dealing with that. Yes, you're absolutely right. And there's a certain sense of novelty whenever I start previewing films for the upcoming edition of the festival, where I'm consistently impressed by how identity is placed against different genres and sensibilities. So the stories don't read the same or similar. They seem varied and different. So that's what makes my job so exciting year after year. That's what's made it so exciting, is to be almost at the forefront, on the vanguard of discovering these new talented voices that are addressing themes like identity, and culture and race in new and innovative ways. And I was looking through 10 years of programming and I was really, you know, even myself, even though every year we have this challenge to create a diverse slate, I was looking back and I was like, wow, we've really achieved something here. And we've been achieving something for the past 30 years. I mean, this is not a new festival. Um, We celebrated 30 years last year. So collectively, we've given a platform to so many exciting voices. So like when I talk to my therapist and I have like a, a thought that's not substantiated by evidence, I'm like, like, what is the evidence? What is the evidence? So sometimes I walk away from a festival edition thinking like, oh, we didn't do this or we didn't do that or we could have done this better. And yes, it's great to be self-critical, but it's also important to look at the evidence and what has the San Diego Latino Film Festival done and the Digital Gym Cinema done to amplify Latinx voices over the past 30 years? And the answer is a lot. 
All right. I want to thank you very much for going over 10 years of your work here. Thank you so much, Beth. That was Moises Esparza. After 10 years of curating films for San Diego Latino Film Festival and Digital Gym Cinema, he's moving on to a new position at Media Arts Center San Diego to ensure the future of both the festival and the micro-cinema. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. If you enjoy the podcast, then please share it with a friend because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. Till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.